Hello, and welcome everyone to part seven of the Anderson Countdown. I'm one of your hosts, Scott Shelton, and this week we're discussing Wes Anderson's surprise, surprise, seventh directorial effort with the coming-of-age comedy drama Moonrise Kingdom. Before we get to that, however, with me as always, I have my Countdown co-hosts, Scott Harvey and Jay Habib. Scott, you first. How are you doing? I am good, Scott. Uh, we are into the home stretch of the countdown here uh, with yeah. the last four films, three three left after this. But uh, well, technically, you know, if you're going to count Asteroid City, I guess um, the new one that is coming. And we're not. Out, we're not watching that issue. movie. To be clear, we're not yeah. going to cover that movie on the podcast. We just but. we just randomly decided to do this. We respect Wes, but not enough um, to watch the new movie. As of this recording, the the trailer has just come out for Asteroid City. Uh, I'm very excited based on what I saw in the trailer. I think it looks great. I think it looks, you know, on par mm-hmm. with Wes's other recent efforts. And I'm interested to see how some of the new cast members, um, you know, equip themselves uh, with, you know, Tom Hanks in there and Scarlett Johansson also prominently featuring in the trailer. Um, seems mm-hmm. like they're going to have some lead roles in this movie. So, um, but yeah, happy to be here uh, and uh, in moving into the home stretch of the countdown. Yeah, we're entering the 2010s. Uh, Jay, how are you feeling going into the 2010s, Wes Anderson? I don't know. Uber. Pretty good. I mean, I, I think expectations were high given how much you guys have been talking about how good the last stretch of this countdown is going to be. Haven't been disappointed yet. Yeah, so ominous. Make it sound like Moonrise Kingdom let you down or something. I don't know. I was. I said I haven't been disappointed yet. I thought yet. I thought I just showed my hand. <laughs> Okay, well, I wasn't sure if you were being like, we haven't started talking about Moon Ice Kingdom, so I'm going to pretend that uh-huh. I haven't seen it yet. Well, we haven't started the home stretch in, in, that, in that case, but whatever. No, I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm no, showing no. my hand. Touche. Yeah, all right. So Jay's giving it a, a 10.2 out of 10. He's going to break his I figure, his, I figure you guys might, away. given your, your letterboxed reviews, I was like, oh my goodness. Like, I think our, our Moonrise Kingdom um, hive dumb has been there to see on Letterboxd for many years. No, mm-hmm. no surprise. You think I just go perusing your letterbox for fun? Frankly, yeah. I, I think, Tr- I think truthfully, that you do actually, do that. I have. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely have. I can't even pretend. Yeah, I was um, gonna say, call, call on your bluff on that one, buddy. <laughs> I, I will say, I have not looked at your your West work until like after I've seen the movie, yeah. and it's not something that I was interested in enough before. Sure. I mean, that's basically what everyone does on Letterboxd, right? It's just stalk everyone else's ratings and stuff. I mean, that's kind of... Yeah, every every few weeks, Scott and I put some time on the calendar and we go through and and belittle people's reviews and what stars they gave them. I have done that before, but um, Scott's probably exaggerating slightly. I'm saying it feels like that should be a segment on the the normal show, just like, and this week's dumbest reviews. It's exclusive to Patreon, so if you're interested... Sign up for so no one has has seen it. <laughs> we are doing it, yeah. Oh man, yeah, maybe that might be the case. Uh, only one way to find out that you're gonna have to join the Patreon page at www.patreon.com/slash/media/plugpods. Uh, I guess more on that later, since that usually comes at the end. But as already mentioned, this week's countdown focus is the 2012 loosely semi-autobiographical, but ultimately fictional piece, Moonrise Kingdom. Directed by Anderson, of course, and co-written with his Darjeeling Limited collaborator Roman Coppola. Moonrise Kingdom is set on the fictional island of New Penzance, somewhere off the coast of New England. This Martha's Vineyard-esque stand-in at first seems idyllic, but ultimately not so for youngster Sam, played by Jared Gilman, a 12-year-old orphan attending an overnight scout camp in the summer of 1965, where he is the most hated boy, and Susie, 
played by Kara Hayward, a similarly aged and disaffected preteen girl with strange violent tendencies and who feels isolated from her parents, played by Bill Murray and Frances McDormand, not to mention her three younger male siblings. Introverted, intelligent, and mature for her for their age, the two have a chance meeting backstage one year prior to the start of the film at a church rendition of the Noah's Ark story, making a quick yet deep connection and establishing a pen pal-like relationship over the following year. As the world feels like it is closing in around them and their budding romance develops, the two craft a secret plan to reunite and run away together at the end of the summer. After executing their plan, Susie's parents, the local police captain Duffy Sharp, played by Bruce Willis, and Sam's scoutmaster Randy Ward, played by Ed Norton, quickly respond and organize a search party for the two children. But of course, it's never so simple in a West movie. And that, Jay, let's go to you first. Moonrise Kingdom received mostly positive reviews upon its release in the early 2010s, with critics praising its combination of whimsy, sincerity, and poignancy. But it's not without its controversy or detractors as well. Did you find Moonrise Kingdom to be fertile soil for Wes's thematic and storytelling ambitions? Or like the other scouts' opinions of Sam for most of the film, were you ready to be rid of it by the time the credits rolled? I am in the former camp. I really, really liked it. Again, we, we talked last week, maybe it was like four, one of these weeks about how it's, it's really hard to do a bad job in under 90 minutes. But I think in this case, we've actually done a really good job in under 90 minutes or about 90 minutes. I think it might be like 10 minutes over. It was short. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time. I'm sure we'll get into like some of those detractors. There's definitely, I mean, there's definitely one scene that I'm like, I don't know if we needed this. And then there's about 10 minutes in the movie where it like, you know, the, the whimsy, the charm, however you want to think of it, just felt really weird to me. But the rest of it, you know, I, I'm talking, of, you know, again, I'm, I'm blanking on the exact runtime, but let's call it like 75 minutes of I'm actually having a really good time. Um, it's heartfelt. It's charming. I like, you know, as an adult, I don't like, I mean, it feels weird calling myself an adult, but as an adult, I'm not sure when was the last time I rooted so hard for like two kids like that, you know? I mean, I'm not even sure what shows I've watched were or movies I've watched, but that would be a thing. But no, I mean, it, it was it was really well made. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the Wes-isms, Anderson-isms, whatever we should call them, that have carried over. One of them being like the long tracking shot is like the dolly shot as we like go just like horizontal long way across. There's like the, you know, spinning around the table when the boys are talking about why they think or like what's going to happen to Sam or, you know, why he's so weird that reminded me of something we saw in Tenenbaums like it's the, the style was evident I feel like it's it feels like more polished than it did in some of the older movies and I overall really enjoyed it Scott um, I think we've already talked about how we're in the bag for this film why don't you uh, elaborate a little bit on some of your general impressions of the movie yeah, so this for a long time was my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Um, it just it's one of those that always clicked with me. I think, you know, I think I've talked before about how um, I was like for a while, I was a little bit hot and cold on Wes Anderson. Like he had movies that I loved. He had movies that I was not as hot on. Um, some of those which I've come around on just from doing this series like Rushmore, for example. But um, this is the one that this is one that I always loved from the beginning. You know, we'll see. There are some other, at least one or two other movies that we have not talked about yet that may have passed it now in my mind, but it's still an absolutely delightful film. Um, and, you know, I think it, it, it continues, not, not that Wes's, you know, 
other films don't have their emotional moments. So certainly in the case of um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, which we talked about last last time, we had, you know, you have that lovely sort of closing scene there in the supermarket. But, um, you know, I, I do think it speaks to Wes being a warmer filmmaker, perhaps in this time period of his career, which is, you know, other other filmmakers that we like also have gone through similar things. I mean, Christopher Nolan, again, we did a series on him at 2010s, I think is where you really start to see a lot more emotion in his films. Um, I think Noah Baumbach is another example of when he started working with Greta Gerwig. So it's a trend in the recent decade with these, you know, older white dude filmmakers, I guess. Um, but it's a trend that I'm very much here for. Um, I, I definitely think that um, this film is just very charming. Um, honestly, like towards the end made me tear up a little bit just because of how, you know, charmed I was by it. I can't think of another word, but uh, that, that just seems like the appropriate word. I think the whole cast is, is wonderful. Um, I think just sort of the innocence and sincerity of all of it, you know, again, you think of, of Wes Anderson's films as being these sort of very meticulously and artfully constructed dioramas, right? Um, but this movie has such like a purity of heart about it, right? It just has um, that real spirit to it that, um, again, I, I think, you know, Wes doesn't get enough credit for doing that sort of thing um, when, when he is able to nail it in a film like this. Um, I, yeah, like I said, I think the cast is great. Um, I think, you know, the new performers in particular, who we haven't seen yet, Bruce Willis and Edward Norton, I think they're kind of the standouts in this movie, but also the two um, child actors, uh, Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward, are both very well chosen, you know, fit the vibes of the movie perfectly. Um, yeah, I, I just think, you know, it's it's actually like, I think a little under 90 minutes um, with when you take out the credits, but um, yeah, it's, it's just a, you know, again, wonderful, sincere, sort of um, charming and funny, romantic comedy, drama, whatever you want to call it, adventure movie kind of, um, that still has those Wes Anderson trademarks there, but is, you know, I think a lot more accessible than most of his other films, just because of how um, sort of open-hearted it is. And ultimately that's why it still connects with me and it still goes down as one of my favorites from his oeuvre. Yeah, emotionally accessible. I think I would agree with that. I think I think some of, I mean, even even a lot of the films that I really like I mean, even something like Royal Tenenbaums, which is probably one of my favorites that we've watched to date, is like, I think it's some, in some ways, there is a bit of a barrier, even, even with the sort of more relatable storytelling that you might find in, in something like that's just a, almost like a pure play family drama. There's, just, there's obviously just something about Wes's filmmaking style that it either, in a lot of ways, it either works for you or it doesn't. It, may, it either makes things, it either makes you open up to the emotional message of the film or it closes you off a bit. I feel like it's kind of hard to be in the middle ground on his techniques, especially Jay, I think to your point as he really refines them and tries to hone them down. I think he's really starting to do that more in, in the last couple of films. I mean, Fantastic Mr. Fox was a bit different. And, I, and one of the things that I was thinking as I watched this movie is, I wonder how making a stop motion animated film actually really developed a lot of his techniques because you know it's, it's, it's both more flexible and less flexible than live action. Like you can, manipulate the figures uh, 
that you're using to create the animation more so than you know these human actors that you're working with but at the same time you understand that what people are watching is ultimately <clears throat> these figures and not um you know quote unquote real people acting so i i do wonder you know through through that process of making fantastic mr fox if he's able to really sort of hone in and refine down exactly what he values most in his own filmmaking techniques because it, it does really feel like there's a a step function difference between say um the darjeeling limited for example and, and then this movie as you talk about like you know his most recent live action picture that he'd made and, and yeah i mean i'm i'm in scott's camp on just being utterly charmed by this film i remember the first yeah like scott the first time i watched this movie i was just sort of really captivated by it and it it covers some very in like but both both similar in some ways, but also just like very new or different themes than than I think we see, at least in any other film to date. I mean, this whole notion of you know mental health is something that's been covered before, but never to the extent of like we're talking about a twelve year old. Like I mean, mental health goes all the way back to his first film with Bottle Rocket. I mean, one of the one of the brothers there is being broken out of a you know like a psychiatric hospital at the beginning of the film. Um, so clearly it's something that's on his mind, but I think the the choice that he makes to examine that in the context of um, an environment where these, you know, impressionable minds, these these 12-year-olds um, and how their interactions with other people really affect them. I think that that is something that, I guess for me, felt immediately accessible because when I first watched this movie, I was probably, you know, 18, 19 years old when I first watched this film. And I mean, that's, I'm not 12 years old, obviously, but I feel like that's something that I hadn't seen in a movie before. And even if I didn't feel like I had the exact same experiences of, um, <clears throat> of Sam or um, Susie, I, I felt like th those emotions felt super relatable as opposed to watching, you know, some equivalent prestige drama that's ex accessing experiences that just, you know, that could, would, would presumably escape me at the time. So I really, I really loved it for that reason. And then even as I revisit it, you know, I probably have watched this film probably four or five times at this point. Um, the, the sort of the charm of it never goes away for me. I just find it's, it really just feels like, and I probably said this before, but it really just does feel like an ultimate blend of things like stylistic tweaks that like Wes is making combined with this sort of very, this open-hearted, sincere, earnest, sort of yearning for these children to, you know, be able to create something for themselves that fulfills them or makes them happy at a very base level. And I think sort of the quote unquote hijinks that a lot of the adults get up to around this adds to the entertainment value. I think, you know, if you were to point at certain parts of the film that might feel like you'd use more development, I think maybe I would point to something like the relationship between the parent, between Susie's parents, like, Bill Murray and Francis McDormand, that that part feels a bit underserved if I were to point to one thing. But I think the the sort of the counterbalance to that is just how rich I think the Bruce Willis character and the Bruce Willis performance is. It's sort of any time that I think about like, oh, they really didn't do a great job maybe exploring Mr. and Mrs. Bishop. But really that's sort of, you know, when you have something like what, what they're doing with Captain Sharp here, it really feels like it's not as essential to get the parents right um and so that's just something that i really appreciated and loved and, and you know t t talking about like childhood mental health or, or young adult mental health whatever 
that's one element, but there's a lot of other stuff going on in this film as well. I mean, the whole young love element, which is obviously tied into mental health, but that element I think is interesting. I think, I don't know if this is one of the things that you're talking about, Jay, when you're referring to things that you didn't think were necessary, maybe it made you uncomfortable. I mean, one of the, one of the controversies of this film is definitely how it portrays the sexuality of, of the 12 year olds. Um, and to the extent that it shows some of the things that they're doing, which, you know, definitely, definitely pushed some people's buttons at the time. And I'm sure still does today. But also one of the things that I think at least I hadn't really locked in on him before is like really Finn, like he's doing these sort of grand allegories or metaphors, like the fact that he has this whole Noah's Ark or the Great Flood narrative, uh, you know, it kind of opens, the film opens with this sort of rendition of it in the, in the chapel or at the church on New Penzance and the film sort of concludes with it happening in real life just feels like that's something that that is like a place that Wes hasn't really gone to before, or at least not in such an obvious way that it just felt like he was trying a lot of new things and, and they all sort of worked in a way that really affected me, um, even if it didn't affect everyone. So huge fan of this film overall, I guess to start Jay, just to go back to you, a lot of people really felt that Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward were sort of the real revelations in a way of these sort of newfound talents. And it, it's kind of this weird thing where they've really not done anything else of significance since this movie. Like they've dabbled there's in things here and there. Maybe they have some minor supporting roles in a movie. So Jared Gilman is now a dude on film Twitter, basically. Um, you'll if you're if you're on film Twitter, if you're locked in on film Twitter, you'll often see him come up because he just he kind of contributes to the discourse. But um, I think he's he in college right now. I think he's like in. I think he's like at NYU right now. He has not really done anything acting wise. Kara Hayward has been in a few things. Um, she was in a small movie that I liked called The Sisterhood of Night. Um, a couple of years after this, um, she also showed up in. I, Manchester by else. the Sea. Yeah, she was a little. Yeah, sister. there was yeah. something else I remember seeing her in. But um, but anyway, uh, what I really wanted to say is that uh, the two of them actually have a very funny cameo in the film Patterson, which Patterson, um, yeah, every, everyone should watch. It's a wonderful film by Jim Jarmusch. But um, Adam Driver plays a bus driver in the movie. And at one point, Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward are on the bu- on his bus, riding his bus and are having like an argument. Um, and it's obviously like a nod to their Moonrise Kingdom characters because it was a couple years after that movie came out. But um, that's really, in a way, that's almost the only other thing of note that they've done is indirectly reprising their roles for, yeah. you know, the, the Jarmusch film. Yeah, but I mean, a cameo in a Jarmusch movie is like not, I mean... It's not, you know, yeah. He's, he's but not it is memorable. Filmmaker. Again, it, if you've seen the sure. film, if you've seen the film, like it is memorable, but yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. Yeah, so I, to get back, I guess, to the to the question at hand, Jay, is that, you know, Wes was able to sort of pluck these people out of having never done anything, both of them out of never having to acted in a major project before, and seems like crafted something that really worked. I mean, I was, I'm a huge fan of their performances. It sounded like all of us were just from the high level thoughts, but I'd love to dig a little bit more in with you and, and maybe get you to explain why you felt like it really was effective, um, in spite of maybe the lack of success from their from their careers to date after this sure i mean i i mean i'm not going to speculate as to why they weren't successful after i definitely can't i mean it's hard being a child actor is hard i mean i just no sure and i mean that's exactly 22 still yeah yeah no and in my mind that was exactly it It was like you know they were i mean as i was watching like towards the end um 
you know, maybe it was a little bit after I, like, I did look them up and I was like, I wonder what else they've been in. Like I had the same, yeah, I noticed exactly what you guys pointed out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was their the performances are effective. I'm trying to figure out how to word this. It's like, they're, I mean, they're meant to be playing characters that like have traits that everyone else, like that ostracizes them to everyone else. Right. But it, you know, it's done in such a way that like, I really do feel for them. Like I don't, yeah, you know, even though I'm sitting there and I'm like, I get why people find you annoying. Like I don't find you annoying. Um, you know, as like that's, that's this observer. The, the, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say I think a that it that is a difficult thing to pull off, and I think that's such a what a key part of that is just the 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 fact that the story is ultimately being told from their perspective. So like there is this very generous lens put over the camera for you to do that because if if you're not feeling that way, Jay, the film is like gonna be super unsuccessful. Like if you think this guy's just like an annoying prick going around his his scout camp like you're gonna be like why the hell am i watching this movie um, and and it helps you understand their circumstances too which led them to be the way that they are of course which sure. is that both are sort of ostracized by their family even um yeah. and you know to to the point that you know uh bruce willis calls up uh, sam's foster parents yeah. and they're like uh, just so you know him. <laughs> we don't want him back or what and he's like that's not even why i called you he's like i just wanted to tell you that he was missing and they're like he where he's not welcome here anymore or whatever so you know again the movie kind of goes out of the way to show you that they they really are treated well or at least appreciated for their individuality within um their own homes and that's something that i think everyone can relate to in a way acknowledging like you know the benefit we get of having the story being told be told through their perspective, you know, that friendly lens you just described. Like, I still think ultimately they do have to like play the part. And like, you know, it's this, it's this thing that, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has this opinion. I feel like a lot of child actors, like they're, they're children, you know, like there's a certain ceiling on like how high they can go. You know, the, Harry Potter's in the news a lot right now for reasons I don't want to get into, but like, you know, I look back at like the first Harry Potter and as much as I like love the whole franchise, I'm like, wow, some of these like Daniel Radcliffe moments, as much as I love him and he'll say it too, or like a little bit cringe um that's why they shouldn't recast him in the in the tv show (laughs) they should keep the same actors yeah he won't be a kid anymore from the start Uh, (laughs) they'll de-age him it's fine yeah i mean are we gonna get an alan rickman hologram because that's the only way i'll accept a a new snape anyway we're getting off topic um i just just using that as an example of like i can like love something and still be like oh yeah you know the children the kid actors as kids at this point you know it was a little like haha but I I really didn't have moments like that. I just felt really immersed. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was there again, rooting for them, despite you know some of these like super antisocial behaviors they exhibit yeah. in the film. Yeah. Well, it's not quite you know like the Big Bang Theory trying to get me to like Sheldon Cooper, who like you know if any of us ever knew oh, anyone man. like him, like we would never spend more than five minutes around him. Big, big, uh, like big in Bang, real life. Big Bang Theory and, reference just made Scott check out completely. I think. <laughs> Well, I'm just I'm just thinking of characters who have like you know that that is a character right who like you know just like great as Jim Parsons is in that role like that's not a character you'd ever like really want to be around. Yeah, and, and but you also have Lucas Hedges right who in his own way is an opposing force but he's a complete d bag too. Um, so you know they're they're setting some things up that sorry Scott looks like he's frozen. We can keep it going. Yeah. Uh, that was unprofessional. Um, so, you know, they're, they're setting up a lot of different 
opposing forces, whether it's the families, again, whether it's sort of the situations that they're, that they're in, whether it's like Lucas Hedges' character, for example, who is just tormenting Sam pretty much for the whole movie, that, uh, you know, endear you to these characters. Um, totally. He does a great like, job, like, being a complete D-bag, like you said. <laughs> like, it's another case of, you know... You're like, yeah, stab <laughs> him in the leg or whatever. Well, I don't know if I go that stuff. far. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there there yeah. are some things kids should not be doing in this movie and stabbing you know, with scissors is one of them. Running with scissors. Um, but yeah, no, I think the performances are fantastic uh, of Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward. Again, they they are this. I think what you're talking about, Jay, is just the sincerity of um, of their performances or ultimately why you like them, because even in this Wes Anderson artificial world or whatever, they do seem real and um their interactions with each other, you know, they meet and like, it happens really quickly, uh, like their romance, but um, you believe it, right? Like just that scene where he comes through in the dressing room, right? Where they have their first meeting and he, he comes, you know, out of the closet, whatever it is. And they have their first little interaction where he's like, Oh, you know, what kind of bird are you? And she's like, Oh, I'm a raven. Right. And she's a raven. Yeah. No, what kind um, of bird are you? <laughs> yeah. And I... then, you know, he gets chased out of there or whatever. And that's I mean, it. There was but a like, montage which, like, you know, served its its purpose. Yeah. If if I can believe it'll turn, if a montage can turn Michael B. Jordan from a broken man into a world class fighter, then like a montage can convince me that two twelve year olds after a year of writing to each other are, you know, right. I was gonna say, you know, there there are is obviously the letter writing which we do get, but that's all you need, right? All you need is that montage and just that first scene between the two of them and like you can feel that there is like a connection in there and that they they you know see something in the other person that is identifiable to them that is you know a commonality between the two of them um and that everything that happens after that is is believable in that regard because they can be themselves around each other and not really around anyone else without fear of you know, uh, people retaliating. So, um, yeah, great performances, really locked in on the West vibes and just really sincere and charming performances, again, despite some of their behaviors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the qualities that makes their performances really work uh, in, in the film is, is a lot, again, not to sound like a broken record, but just sort of is the stylist, the stylistic ways that, that West sort of, embraces sort of awkwardness or, or feeling off-putted about something um i think that that works perfectly right like this the, i mean it feels like so many of his anachronisms sort of rotate around this notion of making you feel a little bit uncomfortable and i think that when you have a couple characters that make you feel a little uncomfortable because of their antisocial tendencies whether that's because you know, she has a pair of scissors that she's going to stab someone with, whether he's like sneaking into women's dressing rooms and asking weird questions to a bunch of 12 year olds. Like, I think that those are things that if in the cold light of day, probably make everyone feel a little bit uncomfortable. But in a West movie, when you're talking about these are the perspective from the perspective of the main characters of the film, it, it feels sort of arresting almost like it almost it almost makes you drop your like drop your sort of guard or your walls or your barriers. Um, because you know, like that's what the movie's doing, and I think that, you know, maybe, maybe, frankly, one of the reasons why they're not getting—I mean, for, forget about their acting quality or whether they're good, irrespective of the film. I think mean, one of the reasons why it might be hard to cast a couple of uh, like these two actors and their things is that 
there are just so few filmmakers who can make a movie in that style or in that frame. I mean, Jim Jarmusch is probably one of the people that can make a movie like that, frankly. Um, and they even that, you know, it's a small cameo. I mean, the movie's not about kids. Seth Patterson's not about kids, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I, I really like the performances. I think that a lot of a lot of the charm of the film hinges upon you rooting for them, Jay. I mean, that was one of the things that you were talking about, that in sort of in spite of, again, like maybe if, if you just wrote down bullet points about this movie on a, on a piece of paper, you might be like, well, why am I rooting for these kids? They're being a bit weird. Uh, but like in, in the context of the film, it just works. And I don't even really feel like I have an explanation for that always. I mean, I can try to try to work work through it, but something about these two kids and also probably just about how like at all of us at some point in our lives when we were younger around this time, like we probably had a crush on someone and we probably imagined a situation that although not in specific detail, like you see where they stabbed the our worst here. enemy in the leg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the, the kid who rode up on a motorcycle at the age of 12 um, who, you know, they've been stabbed or whatever. Yeah, exactly. But no, I just, I just think that it's, it's the, the film almost traffics in a bit of, um, idealism and, and wish fulfillment in a way, I think for, for, you know, child, you know, child love and this notion of, um, you know, almost, almost Im immature desire in a way that I think is, is hard to be mad about, I think in a lot of ways, like it's, it's something that feels relatable even if ultimately it feels unrealistic um, in that, in that way, in that way, it feels some like some sort of like fable almost. I think so many of Wes's movies um, feel very grounded, like almost too grounded. Like you'd almost wish they weren't as real and grounded. But I think one of the qualities of Moonrise Kingdom is that it feels going back to the notion of being open hearted and <clears throat> sincere and earnest as opposed to something more serious. I think that that quality sort of gives this film and maybe also, frankly, the coloring of the movie, sort of the um, almost like the almost sepia like tone that it, that, it, that it feels like it's shot in sometimes is is very warming. And I think, yeah, so ultimately, I just think that the film really works because of these performances and what Wes is aiming for, again, just really match really well. And so you have to sort of, I have to sort of give it up for for Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward in that respect. So I think going off that, I do want to talk about some of the adult cast. But just going off of that, because I think it, it's appropriate now to talk about those themes. And if if we want to dip our toe in the controversy before we move on to to other stuff, I think that's that's fine. But this notion, I mean, a lot of the story, the middle section of this film, you know, is this sort of chase to find Sam and Susie. And while they are being hunted down by the search party of, you know, a hodgepodge of people, they are getting to explore the romantic element of of sort of their relationship and Jay, I know it's something that it's, it sounds like you were alluding to that, that you weren't sure about. Um, so I'd love to hear if that is true, hear you expand on that a little bit more or, or did, did that sort of romantic exploration of child sexuality, et cetera, did that work for you or did, did it leave you feeling a bit unsure? Uh, I, I wasn't really here for it. I, I wouldn't say it left me unsure. I wasn't, I'm not going to like, you know, like protest like i'm not gonna like not watch the rest of wes anderson's filmography because this was so mm. upsetting to me i wouldn't even it's not even close to that but it was definitely a little weird like in my mm. mind i'm like they, these are like actual kids right like and i don't know like it so i well once you like you i think you actually alluded to some of the controversy or detractors first and i very quickly you know like 
as we were like getting into it, just like looked up right away. What, what did other people say about this? And like, you know, some people complained about like the dancing scene at the lake right before they get into like the kissing. And I actually thought the dancing scene was very like heartwarming. And I really like, you know, he was kind of like, you know, just doing his weird, like very like jabby moves the way like a 12 year old would. And, mm-hmm. you know, she was just kind of like, just like bopping in her play. And again, it just felt very like, yes, this is two 12 year olds who like are super awkward and are just like having this moment. And like, you know, I was like totally here for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think just like when we got to, like they were kissing. I'm like, all right, fine. You know, whatever. And then, then it was like the, the, the chest groping. And I was like, all right, this is a little weird. Like they're, they're 12 in this movie. I think, you know, at the time of shooting, they're probably like 14, 15. Like, no, they're younger than that. They're like 12. They're like 11, 12 when they're shooting the movie. Oh, okay. Well then even more so like, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like it, like, is it, it's not like untrue. It it doesn't feel like untrue to the story, right? Like it totally feels like something that like could happen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you probably could just like explain, not explain, explore, you know, themes of like these two 12 year olds, like getting like, you know, like physically intimate without like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you would do it, but I feel like there, yeah. that probably wasn't it. And like, again, it's not such a hang up that I'm like, when I think about this movie, like six months from now, like that's not going to be the first thing that pops into my head. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it would be a little weird if it was. But touche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No. I mean, it, I, I I thought it was just like a little bit too much. Like I, I didn't. I wouldn't say it like took me out of the movie or anything. Um, but mm. it was something that yeah, I looked over my partner. And I'm like, this, this they're they're twelve. Like, what are we doing right now? I don't know if you guys like felt similarly or if it was just you know part of the story for you and not as something of as much note. But I'd be curious to hear. Scott, what'd you think? I mean, I to be honest with you, I didn't even realize there was like a controversy around. It. I mean, not you know, I, I guess it makes sense thinking back on the it. cat. The Catholic uh, news service was all over this, Scott. Again, I, I, I didn't the, even actively realize there was a con. Like you, Scott Shelton alluded to like a controversy in his intro, and then I went and looked it up and saw. All right, yes, like other yeah. people also thought this J- was weird. Jay teaming up with the Seven Hundred Club down here, <laughs> Pat yeah. Robertson, but um, yeah. no, the woke, uh, the woke moralists. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, look, I I, I guess um, you know maybe when he like grabs her her breast or whatever, like that might be mm. the point where we slightly cross the line. But it's just not it's not one of those things where like I didn't really feel like the movie was like romanticizing it or anything like that necessarily. I mean, like yeah, the scene is you know the dancing and everything is great and kind of sweet. Um, it just to me it was just like we're you know we're depicting these teenagers and their adolescent curiosities and mm-hmm. one of their adolescent curiosities, because they're both like, you know, hitting puberty around this time would be, would be sexuality. And I didn't feel, they didn't, you know, they didn't really cross the line for me. I don't think there was anything really that was that distasteful about it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, r- really, it boils down to that that one little scene, and then you know the guys are like the other scouts are talking about like, oh, what you know, what he may have done. Oh, did he get to third base or whatever with her and all that stuff? Which yeah. again, it's just it's locker room talk. Um, <laughs> it's exactly it's exactly what <laughs> kids that age how how kids that age would talk. I mean, look, especially these scouts at camp. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> like... especially Lucas Hedges and his cronies, but. Um, yeah. 
but yeah, so I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't think too much of it in the moment. Like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, you know, that it's, it's right and moral and everything, but uh, it was just kind of, it was a passing thing. And I didn't feel like the movie necessarily presented it in any sort of way other than this is how these kids would probably react in this situation. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot of edginess, um, frankly, it, it maybe sounds weird to say, to say that about something in a movie like this in a movie, but I mean, in a Western, he, he, there's edgy stuff in his other films, but this one, maybe feels weird to say that there's that but i feel like there's a lot of edginess like thematic edginess in this film like the whole notion of, of Susie being depressed like like to, to talk about a 12 year old like a, a the depression of a 12 year old um i think that's frankly like pretty edgy for a movie to do especially when you when you hear what she's going through and and sort of her violent outbursts and tendencies i think that that sort of fits and and i think when you translate that over to with someone who's struggling maybe with that, with that side of her mental well-being, and you transpose that into, you know, she's 12 years old, she's immature. And when put into a situation like this with another 12 year old who feels also emotionally isolated, maybe not depressed and maybe also depressed. It's, I think it's a little bit, it's not as explicitly laid out in this film, maybe what he's feeling about that, but certainly he feels isolated and outcast from other people. And I think when you, you feel the sense of belonging, it, it does feel like this isn't, a sort of natural development maybe in what they'd be exploring. And I, I, although I understand why people might be upset about it, I, I do sort of lean in the direction that Scott was talking about where it, it feels like it's delicately done and in a, and ultimately inoffensive, I think to the length that it went for me. And if people feel differently, that's fine. Um, I, I get it to an extent, but I would say it, it toes the line of, of what is acceptable. And I think it, it thematically fits with sort of, I think, a lot of the edginess of what it's doing in some, with some of its other themes with these children. So again, I think I can understand some perspective of it, but it, I mean, I, I was reading something where someone was talking about how like it, it's close to like exploiting children for, I'm just like, I'm not, I don't really see how you watch this movie and feel like it's exploiting these two actors. I mean, maybe I'm missing something like maybe I'm just like way off in interpreting what's going on, but I don't think of Wes as an exploitative filmmaker, I guess in, in a way, like it feels like he's interested in telling stories that, you know, are emotionally impactful to him. And I don't know if that's super, that doesn't, that doesn't feel exploitative to me, but maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. I think that's possible too. I mean, I'll say I like one, one moment, like even if we were to go ahead and say this was, and I'm not saying that it is, like I don't think that would, yeah. not having seen Of Course the next three movies, like I don't think that would make me characterize him as a whole, as an exploitative filmmaker. Like you mm -hmm. can have a moment, right? That just feels a little bit like sure. you might've stepped over the line without it being like, oh, you are this, like, you know, which mm -hmm. I, I guess like most people these days, like, you know, you can't have that, right? You either are this horrible thing or you haven't done anything wrong and like, you know, but yeah, I think yeah, I think we can have a nuanced discussion about no it. room for nuance in today. Like, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. the discourse on this film today, right? Like, imagine Twitter talking about this movie today. That given their conversation about like licorice pizza, for example. Like, oh, I don't even bring. Why you got to bring up licorice? Pizza? I was gonna that, say, right, hold up. <laughs> why you got? Why you got to bring that up? It's not. It's not like Susie is twenty-two and 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 sure. making out with a twelve-year-old in the film. 
Um, so you're condoning, <laughs> condoning this then? Condoning which part? The what happens in this film? Then? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, look, I, don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Scott Shelton canceled. I think I think literally literally what I said. <laughs> I think literally what I said in, in explaining my feelings about it was that I, I found it acceptable. Yeah, and I, I kind of, I, I do as well, honestly. Again, I'm just, yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. here to stir the pot. Scott Harvey yeah, yeah, yeah. canceled. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to that. I mean, that, this is the reason why we can't have, we can't ever do a Paul Thomas Anderson countdown. It's because we'd have to have discourse about licorice pizza. We just can't, sim we simply cannot have that. Yeah, that would probably end the yeah. podcast. If, I mean, we reviewed that movie already, but I don't know if we need to reinvite discussion on. No, on that but movie. but if we got Jay in, here, well, we'd have to get Jay in here, and then Jay would agree yeah. with Scott because that's what usually happens. Which one? And Which Scott though? I, with you, <laughs> and then I would be fighting for my life. So there was like no, one movie. I'm I'm racking my brain. I feel like there was one movie where Scott Harvey and I came in aligned against Scott Sheldon, but for the life of me, I the can't Phantom remember. Menace. That's definitely <laughs> not what it was. <laughs> that wasn't what it, that wasn't what it was. I think it was something in Nolan, probably. I don't know. Was it Nolan? I thought I would have guessed Fincher. Um, yeah, maybe it was Fincher. Well, you, you didn't like Mank, though. So Benny, Benny Butt? Was yeah. it Benjamin Button? Benjamin Button. Benny yeah, Butt maybe. was fine. I don't know. <laughs> Good Everyone I don't loves remember. Benny's Butt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so that is enough of Susie and Sam. I would like there to is... bring up uh, a sure, different charming character if we were going to move on to the adults. Are, are we sure. going to do that? T Social services? Yeah. You want to talk about Tilda Swinton? You want to talk about? She's wonderful, but I can't believe... It. Okay, see, even she has come up before Edward Norton. I... Okay. I, the I disrespect take... of talking about Edward Norton before Bruce Willis. But okay, You brought up Bruce going. Willis already. Okay. Um, talk about whoever you want, Jay. I, talk about I, who I, you want I, to, Jay. Okay, yeah. I, I thought Bruce Willis was phenomenal. The reason... No, don't backtrack now. I'm, we all know that you're standing here for Ed Norton. I'm, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm going to segue into Ed Norton because we're talking about, like, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. awkward lovable characters like you want to talk about sure. someone like that like i've seen i mean we've seen edward i don't i mean we've, we've all seen him do like a bunch of different things um this you know i mm -hmm. i've only sat with this for like a day this might be like my favorite role for him just like sure you know we, we've seen him be an illusionist an a-hole idiot you know split personality murderer just give me like nice lovable troop leader like mm -hmm. i was absolutely here for it um you know that opening it's so funny scene. it's so funny now because it feels like i mean it really feels against type for him um mm -hmm. but i don't know yeah it's really charming. maybe it does it's like, but tom, it's I, like tom cruise and collateral you know let's it's pretend type, I, i've seen that sure <laughs> um keep going no just i i really enjoyed it like you know i i really bought into him as like you know this scout leader the way he you know he's just like trying to stick up for sam especially on some of those phone calls and like during those troop inspections like mm -hmm. you know going around and then that heartfelt moment uh where he's telling sam that he would have you know given him a commendation for his tent like that was just a, a really sweet warm moment and again like i feel like i'm i'm not particularly used to seeing ed norton in these kinds of moments but i like i was so here for it um so you know yeah. we're, we're, we're talking about awkward lovable characters like give me ed norton scott what do you think of ed norton great scott yeah, Randy yeah. Ward. i yeah i think you know again bruce willis may be uh, definitely against type here in this in his part but i think this is i think this this role makes sense for edward norton certainly he has that sort of plucky camp counselor vibe about him um and that's definitely um 
I feel like he's well, I feel like his type is just like huge dick or douche at this point though. Maybe early like, maybe early in his career. And I guess, you know, I guess his most recent film he was also a douche, but um, I mean Birdman. I'm just thinking of other movies in this time, like around yeah. this time. Like yeah. yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't think of this as being super out of character for him. But whatever yeah. the case, he's really good. His, you know, it has he, his charm. It has his trademark it, sort yeah. of charm. He's very yeah. believable as the yeah. plucky camp counselor again, who is not really doing his duties as a as a khaki scout counselor as he should, perhaps, but also cares more about these kids and you know cares more about Sam than everyone else is telling him that he should so we like him for that reason same same thing with bruce willis like i'm sure we're going there next but um yeah you know it's he he became a a star because of his you know sort of wisecracking tough guy action roles and stuff and this is just kind of the antithesis of that in every way but he nails it like he he nails like the sort of wounded paternal figure of this um you know cop um who feels a connection with with this sort of you know lonely kid and uh and i think that relationship as much as the sam and susie relationship really drives the heartbeat of the movie it's a real shame that you bring up that he's a cop scott because i think that we have to cancel him now i mean okay yeah this movie is propaganda yeah Yeah, it's propaganda unfortunately um you know we all have our propaganda movies in the in the early 2010s chris nolan included so we, you know, it's okay. We'll give him a pass. But yeah, Bruce Willis, I think, cast against type for sure. He just has some. <laughs> we were we were texting about this guy when I watched it at the end of last week, where it's like you don't really think about it, but it's like kind of one of his like last really like truly big roles in a movie. Like yeah. he's done so much like direct to DVD garbage or direct to you know VOD garbage that. You know, most of his last, you know, if you go on his Wikipedia page or whatever, his last like 20, like his last, like 19 of his last 20 movies are just like complete trash that some do not exist. Student, yeah. Yeah. Like you, you, you would be forgiven for thinking that's not a real movie. I mean, like, is it Midnight in the, in the Switchgrass? Is like what he has like a couple movie titles, just like epic. <laughs> yes. Uh, needle and in a Time the... Stack. Needle, needle in a Time Stack time. is another one. He's in just one like, of them. We don't know which one. He's in, he's in Midnight in the Switchgrass. He's not in Needle in a Time I will stack. never not laugh yeah, when yeah, yeah. The, the dichotomy of those two movies comes up. <laughs> we saw them next to each other in like some you in some like store in, in North Carolina, right? That we went to when we went to a well, video mean, store. What a title, right? Midnight yeah. in the Switchgrass. What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> and needle in a time stack um that's uh, just yeah i mean that's the title of probably a dcu movie coming out in a couple of years right needle in a time stack why a why, why is the dcu Blue catching Beetle. strays yeah. out here what are we doing they deserve strays they got so many strays you know i really messed up say i'm gonna i'm gonna raise my hand and say i messed up jay because when i was making fun of um spider-man no way home as a couple of kids you could remember like shazam was just the obvious one that i should have said I'm really situation. surprised you didn't. Like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I really goofed. <laughs> I, I goofed on, on that. I'll have to maybe I'll chop this part out and put it in there and make it sound like I, I got it right. <laughs> I got the right reference. But um, anyway, yeah, Bruce Willis, tr- lovely, like really fantastic, really fantastic performance. There's there's some just sort of he's just you know Scott was talking about the sort of the, the tough guy action persona, and this he's just like this like hypersensitive sort of aging figure who hasn't found sort of the the love that he's been looking for in life and comes across this opportunity to 
make a difference in this kid who he feels, uh, who he relates to in, the, in his sense of uh, feeling of isolation and also finds a way maybe to even also sort of, um, you know, shore up some of his own insecurities about himself or shortcomings and, and being a sort of paternalistic figure. And, and it's sort of almost an opportunity for both of them. And the way that he explores this character and fits the, the I think a lot of what the delivery of, of Wes Anderson lines requires is, is really spot on. He does not feel like someone you would have picked out um, from a casting lineup and say this person that would fit really, really well in a Wes Anderson movie. But I mean, he fits seamlessly in, in, in my perspective. Yeah. And I think, you know, I made this point in my Letterboxd review also, but um, the, you know, people talk about the Wes Anderson ensemble and, you know, he has his clique of people, whatever, and Schwartzman and um, the Wilsons and Bill Murray and, you know, uh, people like that. Um, and, you know, p- people think, oh, you know, maybe these are the only actors who can do it. But I think what Wes has shown recently is his versatility and the fact that he can bring new people into the fold and he can, you know, coach them up or whatever to sort of get in the right rhythms. Even somebody like Bruce Willis, right, who you're not even you don't even necessarily think of him as being like a technically really skilled actor for a film like this but he nails it and i think we're going to see also with the coming films more new people getting introduced into the fold given you know the biggest roles the you know medius roles in the in these movies and you know really inventing themselves as um you know capable of of doing so and you know in the case of like jeffrey wright for example He's now, you know, going to be in, uh, going to be in Asteroid City. So he's, you know, he's going to join the club a little bit. Um, who we'll see, we'll see him obviously in the French Dispatches his first appearance. But, um, but yeah. Uh, so I think, I think, I guess my point overall is, Wes is a really good actor's director. Um, he's definitely good at getting people to, you know, get in that rhythm that he wants for his film, which is unique and requires a lot of skill. But he has shown that he can you know, coach anyone to, to do it. Yeah. It feels like so much of it is also timing, um, which is not something that I think is, is easy to like naturally have um, Wes's sense of timing at least. So yeah, I think, I think it's a big deal. Jay, I want to go to you to talk about Bruce Willis a little bit more in a second, but about Ed Norton briefly. Yeah, also a huge fan. This character is, is one, like, I always start off watching this movie, and I think this guy is, like, why I think that it's not ultimately maybe against cast for Norton, why I also may agree with you guys, or agree with Scott. I don't know what your opinion is, Jay. But he's, like, he's he's a, he's, he comes off as a huge dick in, like, the first scene that you see him in in the movie. Like, when he's walking around the scout camp and, like, dressing people down and asking, you know, what you idiot, what are you doing putting the treehouse like up at the top of this tree that was um, one of my favorite moments i don't know what you're talking yeah. about I no it's that. no i'm not <laughs> complaining about it I, it is very funny but like he's a dick like he's not a nice he doesn't come off as this like super like nurturing paternalistic scout mat like scout leader or whatever but then over the course of the film you realize that like this is just him putting on kind of a show like he's almost trying to mold himself into this model that i think that you briefly see with his with the actual sort of like Scoutmaster, whatever Har- that Harvey Keitel plays, um, I think you sort of see what what uh, commander. Sorry, he plays the scout commander, um, and I think you see what Ed Norton's like trying to emulate in being kind of a dick. But in reality, 
when you really see him start to care about someone like Sam, um, not even exclusively, I think he cares about all of his scouts, but the fact that he's also trying, he's also willing to, to be empathetic and, and care for Sam. I think you see that he's not like this other sort of like gruff, um, inaccessible scoutmaster. So I think that it's a really, it's a really, it ends up being a really great performance as well, even though it starts kind of in a, in a funny, not very serious place. Jay, sorry, Bruce Willis. Did you want to elaborate any further? I think you guys covered it. Ultimately, I just really wanted to give the guy a hug, which like yeah. isn't something I wouldn't think of as like my first reaction to mm-hmm. some of the roles I've seen him in earlier. Um, sure. Just because they fit the same, or you know, they they, they make up the arch- archetype that you guys mentioned before. But yeah, I mean, he's also kind of hard to hug in Sixth Sense because he's been dead. <laughs> sure, he's been dead the whole time. Sure, so sure. Cool. I was gonna yeah. say, wow. No, it's been a lot of yeah. years. I think you're fine on that one. It's only uh, the most famous bad. twist ending of all time, probably. That that, that and seven. I think those are the two, yeah. right? So. Sure. Yeah, no. He uh I, I I just wanted to give him a hug. I actually yeah. I, I'm gonna go ahead and take this opportunity because I have not met many famous people, but he is actually one that I had the pleasure of meeting a few years ago. And if I had seen this before, I might have just tried to hug him on the spot. You hit the eight ball on that one, Jay. Now you're gonna have to tell the story. I mean, there's not much to tell. He was just, I uh, was at a concert. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be backstage because I know someone who worked for or works for the band and he was there because he's Bruce Willis. And who's the band? Know, this is a Stones concert. You were at the Stones this, concert? This was the Stones concert. Oh, okay. And he was, um, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, he was just chilling at a Stones he... concert in Boston. That's crazy. If that was Bruce Willis, York, that's totally what I would do. Yeah. Oh, that was in New York. Okay. Oh, it was just the Boston Jersey. part was confusing me. Oh yeah. Okay. No, sure. Being, uh, this, this was at MetLife. Um, yeah. No. And so, again, he was very kind. Like, took a few minutes just to, like talk to us. Um, and it was like still really cool. If I had seen this before, I might have just even like hugged him. And, like, yeah. You're wonderful. You would have been like, you sucked in Die Hard, but I fucking loved you in Midnight. Yeah, I, I didn't no, say no, that. <laughs> I hated you in Midnight in the Switch. <laughs> yeah, he would probably right. be like, I don't even know what that film is. Yeah, I mean, he probably had to shot the film at that point because that is. A, yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing with all not to go more into, if people are interested in, in the Bruce Willis, um straight to vod stuff there's like some actually like really horrible stuff about that whole thing about how he was being speaking of exploiting he was being extremely exploited by um some people around him to make a lot of money when he was in mental decline um which is like actually like it's not very funny at all and it's it's pretty pretty sad um but you know it sounds like you know you had interaction with him that was a little bit before that started to happen and frankly jay i'm jealous because bruce willis is amazing all right, guys, we talked about some new people. You know, there are some other, I guess, new people as well. I and mean, we haven't talked about Francis McDormand, who I don't think has been in a West movie before at this point. Has Tilda Swinton been in a West movie? I feel like she's like one of the people who prob- probably had been in a West movie, but hadn't been. No. Um, so there's some other people there, but I think it makes sense to talk about a couple people who have been in his movies before, namely uh, Jason Schwartzman, who has a pretty epic cameo as Cousin Ben. Um, yeah pretty great and then Bill Murray who has a little bit of a meteor performance but frankly doesn't do very much for me personally in this film Scott what are your thoughts on Jay Schwartz and Beamer you're just not a uh, Bill Murray guy are you Scott <laughs> I love Caddyshack huge fan okay um, 
Yeah, I thought I thought the rest of the ensemble is fun. Yeah, definitely Jason Schwartzman make the mo- makes the most of his appearance. Uh, you know, talking about uh, how the marriage is not legally binding, and I love he has a line or whatever where he's like, "Oh, this is the most important decision that you're ever going to make, or whatever." Now go stand over by the trampoline and talk it yeah. out, or something yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. I was yeah. like, "That's a hilarious line," but um, but yeah, so he's great. Um, I liked the sort of interaction between Bill Murray and Francis McDormand. I just like the dynamic of, you know, they're both attorneys. Yeah. Yeah, It's the Adam's rib uh, setup. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, maybe they could have done a little bit more with it, but it was, it was fun. And, you know, she's like, Oh, aren't you going to do anything about the fact that your daughter's run away from home? And he's like, well, that's a loaded question. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, they, they, they're, I mean, Bill Murray has, you know, he can, he can, uh, he can own the West aesthetic at this point. And then Frances McDormand can do literally anything she wants. Um, so they're, they're in the groove in this movie. And I enjoyed watching them. I enjoyed Bob Balaban randomly showing yeah. up from time As to time. Narrator. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all, all the members of the, the ensemble are a lot of fun. It's a West, West movie. Yeah. I, I mean, to, to be clear, I want to, I want to defend Bill Murray. For a second, huge fan of him in Rushmore. I think he's great in Rushmore. Yeah, um, but this film, he's definitely not given the uh, the best part to to tease out. Like I mentioned at the start, I feel like they there was a decision made in development where we weren't going to focus as much on the development of these characters. Um, we were going to kind of just play them off as assholes, especially Bill Murray's character. And look how great Captain Sharp is, who uh, Francis McDormand didn't end up with at the end of the film, but you know maybe should, maybe should be. Jay, what did you think? I thought Jason Jason Schwartzman, wow, um, was perfect mm-hmm. as cousin Ben. I, I don't need yeah. to elaborate much more, but yeah, like absolutely made the most of uh, his role there. Bill Murray, fine. Again, I, I don't think I'll think back on his performance too much if we talk about this movie like six months from now. But yeah, yeah I've gotten so used to seeing him uh, in West movies that it was like, oh yeah, you're here, of course. Um, you know, where was Owen Wilson? That's what I want to know. Was he was he not available or? I think this is is this the first movie he doesn't at least have a cameo in? I think it might be. I think it might be. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're 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 trending the wrong way on that because Fantastic Mr. Fox was a cameo, albeit a great one. He's had a couple cameos. I think he, I think he had only had a cameo in like uh, in Rushmore, right? I don't think he was. I was gonna say Rushmore. actually, yeah, I'm not sure if. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, not not really much to add on the the supporting cast. Like you said, some of them like aren't that well developed. You know. They're, especially the bishops are just like played off as kind of assholes but I, I think it as far as it goes to like serve the story of sam and Susie, like does its job mm-hmm. the kids are funny though i think the little brothers are it's a funny bit with their they're playing their uh vinyl their vinyl record of whatever mm-hmm. i don't i don't even know like, this is a weather report i know they're playing music but just they feel like there's like this random audio overlaid over this like classical music that they're playing is very strange um yeah i think the last sort of bit um well okay before we get to the last bit, i don't want to end on this note but i think gotta say uh one of the watching this movie scott and jay you'll appreciate this i think i might have included this in my letterbox review um crazy that this has something in common with john wick the fact that it kills a dog in the movie i had forgotten that this happens actually um somehow i'd forgotten that they that they kill poor little snoopy on screen thoughts on that i don't know 
I know Scott doesn't care. Scott Scott doesn't care. Well, I yeah, I've got to go. Yeah. I want to hear what Jay has to say because I felt like he maybe that was what he was alluding to earlier with like there was something that was one scene where he was like that did not need to be in the movie or was was that more of the the dancing scene? That 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 was the after the dancing, you know. Yeah. The, okay. Um, you know, we, we don't have to end on this now. I, I can pitch another topic, but I, no, no, I have another topic <laughs> to talk about. Don't worry, we're not oh, ending okay, on this. Sure. On this. Yeah, I, I didn't really care. I so yeah, when I did my frantic, oh wait, was that other stuff a controversy? I just like stumbled across that, like you know, in the, in the opening minutes of the show, and mm-hmm. I didn't view it as much. Like I, I get, I guess I get why people are upset. Um, it sounds I mean, like people, he, were, people were were upset and complained enough so much so that he made a movie about dogs. Well, to I was gonna say it, it sounds sure. like he exactly he he did make up for it. Um, yeah, although then I mean, he, I he explored other dogs, issues but... in that movie that he he waited into some other problems in that film that we can talk about on Isle of Dogs. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I I, I didn't I, I wasn't like so appalled. I was just like, oh no, the dog died. Like okay. I wasn't like super torn up about it. Like yeah. I didn't see a card that said no dogs were hurt in making this movie, so I assume they killed a dog on set when they were making the dog. Yeah. So it's not a rr where it has a title card at the end of the movie saying that no animals are harmed in the making of the film <laughs> or whatever scott okay unleash your not take even real animals snoopy, anyway <laughs> yeah well unleash your take on how snoopy deserved to deserve to die or whatever you're gonna say no uh yeah i mean it's it's a part of the movie i i, I like the the little line that sam has where he's like uh you know they're they're like he was a good dog or something i, I don't remember exactly what he says but he's like who's to say or whatever you know who's whether he was a whether he was a good or good dog or a bad dog but he didn't deserve to die um you know it's a it's a nice poignant little moment there so mm-hmm. that's all i have to say about that really fair enough all right the actual last topic before we wrap things up um it's sort of a, a dual a dual approach here so why don't want to talk about the end of the film the sort of thing that i teased at the beginning this sort of um, allegory from the beginning of the film, this Noah's Ark scene from the beginning of the film, come to life with the with the storm that sort of is both a massive set piece as they sort of charge around the different the different parts of the island, um, and then obviously in, in the in the church as well when they're climbing up and there's these climactic moments, but also in um, what it sort of I mean what it, what you felt like it really means or or what it meant in the wider context of the film. Like the, it, this felt different for me. I, I don't, I can't think of another time where Wes has done something so maybe on the nose in terms of metaphors or allegories and whatnot. Do you think that, that he sort of deploys this technique pretty effectively? Do you think it, it works well for the film? I mean, obviously this movie is, is pretty strongly thinking about what it means to sort of not necessarily have a fresh start maybe, but what is this notion of like having a clean slate and being able to approach life how you want to? And I wonder if you felt like the actual actual events that happen at the end of this film sort of effectively tie into that. I mean, again, I haven't seen the last three. Can't really speak to whether I feel like he's done anything. Certainly to this point, I don't think we've seen anything as allegorically allegorically on the nose as sure. uh, what we got here. Truthfully, like, and I, I said this at the very beginning, I mentioned there was like, 10-ish minutes maybe it was more like five that kind of like just took me out of the movie i would say it was i don't know if it's like midway through early to midway through kind of that final set piece when when sam gets struck by lightning 
Like you're talking about earlier how this movie is just like grounded in realism yeah, and all this. Yeah, stuff. yeah. And then for about five minutes, it just completely forgets about it. Like, no, no, no. I don't, I don't. I don't think this film is grounded in realism. No, I think I was saying that a lot of Wes's movies are grounded in realism, and this oh, yeah, movie feels like, like a fable. Like this, okay, this film sure. feels like yeah, a was... made-up I mean, story. I, I, I would say, like you know, even you know, it's it, it hasn't quite dipped into the realm of like I, I don't know. It, it felt like it just like took a whole like leap. What once that happened, like so the, mm-hmm. there's the the getting struck by lightning. There's like the running, the running around the open field, like trying to figure out where to go. Well, that's what um, happens then, right before he gets struck. Like that's all the same yeah. sequence, right? Yeah, sure, sure. So there's that. There's getting struck by lightning, and then there's also like Ed Norton, just like you know, leaping across this like chasm with like yeah, someone yeah. on his back. Like again, like Barbie it was. I tell, yeah. Yeah, and like you know, I it feels weird like i i can't pinpoint why but it really just like took me out of it for a few minutes and then i was back on board by the time we were in the church and like you know uh-huh. climbing up the tower and like all that stuff um, Do, does it feel similar to you like in the middle of the darjeeling limited or when they're like trying to save the kids from the river it just like feels like out of nowhere they're doing this like very different thing than the rest of the film like does it have a similar vibe to that for you not really like i guess it you know on on paper like when you describe it that way it does sound like kind of a similar just like oh we're like taking a hard turn here and doing something different i think mm-hmm. can like contextually it makes a little more sense for me in darjeeling limited uh whereas in this one like you know it it just like it weirdly didn't and i, I i'm not you know, yeah this is it didn't make me like dislike the movie in the end but we were pretty close to the end and I, you know or in the last third let's say and i was you know for a, a handful of minutes they're like hey wait like what like what just happened like I, you know that was that was the other moment where i was like are, are we doing this now like he just yeah. um yeah i mean i'm i'm definitely with you on the on the him getting struck by lightning in the middle of the field i'm not as with you on the ed norton scott mash thing i think that's such a critical part of his of his like development as as a character that that i don't feel i mean it, maybe it's it's shot in such a way that feels like a little bit i don't know a little a little different or a little outlandish it, the it, slow it's motion jump, kind but... of a funny way for sure. I mean, I, yeah, I think I mean, I'm already on board with him as like a like to me, he's already developed by the time he like has the moment with Sam where he's telling him about, you know, if I after they catch them, like if I had seen, you know, if I was doing an inspection of your tent, I would have given you a commendation. Like I feel like at this point and like a little bit beyond when they're figuring out what to do with him, like mm-hmm. I get all that. And like, you know, th- this can be an added piece that I don't think it like takes anything away it certainly adds, you know, having him do this, I feel like it just, to me, like that was a moment that just kind of like was out of tone with the rest of the movie. It's just like, okay, like nothing, like nothing like overly wrong with it. Just, I I mentioned, you know, 75 minutes. Oh my God. And then just a few minutes of like, wait a second. Like what? No, no mention of the uh, clock tower being struck by lightning and and crumbling off of the side, but uh, jumping across the, at, at, that, at that point, like we've already, Sam has been struck by lightning and is completely fine. Like Ed Norton has like superhuman strength, even though he's not playing the Hulk. Like at, at that point, fun. I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Scott, look, what do you like, think? Like you said, Scott, it's a fable, and I think it is imagining a world where love can be the most powerful force, right? Like a an idea certainly that we have visited before <laughs> in other films, but but I do sure. think that's what it's about, right? And you know. Mm-hmm. it's all of these sort of relationships that people are saying shouldn't work out. You know, the, the yeah. 12 and 13 year old 
having a romance. Like, you know, it, of course, people are going to be like, oh, it's just a childhood crush or whatever. Well, here it is, like, surviving this, you know, again, metaphorical, but also literal storm. Um, and the, you know, young boy, Sam, and the cop, right? Like, Bruce Willis's character. That's another relationship. It's like, oh, it doesn't really make sense that they would find, like, a connection with each other. But they do. And then, you know, he's here saving them and everything at the end of the film. Um so, yeah, maybe it's a little on the nose or whatever. They're literally weathering the storm and coming out on the other side, like, with their love and kindness and everything for each other. But it's a nice sentiment, right? And I think it's, you know, I think that that thread is carried throughout the entire film. So um, I liked it. I, I really liked the very ending. You know, that's kind of where I was yeah. talking about getting a little bit emotional even where he's making the artwork of, of Moonrise Kingdom and then she's, you know, looking out the window at him uh, with her binoculars and um, as he goes off to be a junior cop, but we'll just ignore that part of it. But um, yeah. it's lovely. It's a lovely ending. Yeah, no, it's, it is an effective way to wrap the film up. And I think we can also wrap our discussion of Moonrise Kingdom up too. If Moonrise Kingdom favorite scene, Jay, you were already talking about what you what you might be, have been your favorite scene, the first scene with Scoutmaster Randy. Is that what your favorite scene was, or was there something different? I want to I want to call it my favorite moment as when Sam and Susie are in the tent. I think the night has passed, and like they, I, I don't know if the night has passed, but the point is like everyone has found them. And they yeah, like run the back morning. into the tent. Yeah. yeah, it's the next morning. Yeah, yeah. They zip it up and then like run inside and like you're seeing it from the perspective. And then Bill Murray yeah. just lifts the tent. <laughs> and yeah. then there's just it, there's just like you know a, a moment of just like stillness where he's just holding the tent. You like see the backs of their heads and everyone else in the background. And I'm like, this could be like like I I would get a poster of this. Like that was just a you know a really cool just like moment. I thought it was really funny. Just like, you know, they go in, they're like, you know, like as if this is gonna do anything, and just yoink, like. There it is. And Jay's out there on the record. He wants a poster of two 12-year-olds wearing their underwear. So, there, there you, you don't see that in the shot. <laughs> I don't think. Dear God. I don't know. Someone will have to fact check him on that. Scott, what was your favorite senior moment? So Jay mentioned the classic uh, Wes Anderson like tracking shot. And uh, I do just want to shout it out again. I think I shouted it out maybe in Fantastic Mr. Fox. But it's a similar sort of thing, you know, at the end of of Mr. Fox to have like the little pan through the new habitat or whatever they've created to all the people yeah. doing there. Well, here they're like panning through the, the homes really. It's like the, the, and this is at the beginning of the film, right? The at very the beginning end. of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just mm -hmm. love like, you know, again, how intricately constructed it is, how you see everyone in their own little area doing their own thing, you know, whether it's, um, mm -hmm. Susie, like reading her books or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and I think it's, I think it's just a perfect way for me, at least it's obviously it's very like aesthetically pleasing, but also it's like a nice way to just set up the characters without any, you know, dialogue being spoken at all. So, um, yeah. maybe it's his old trick, but it, it still works for me. An old trick, but deployed in a new way. I feel like so often it's used at the end of the film to sort of conclude and, and wrap up everyone's narrative. I mean, it literally, that's what they did in Darjeeling Limited. That's what they did in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, maybe I'm forgetting other moments where it's been used differently, but he deploys it sort of in reverse, using it as, as an introduction to characters. And I agree. I, I almost find it more effective in that way. So I'm, I'm with you on that. For me, 
I'm going to go with a Bruce Willis moment. I really love his scene with, uh, with Sam. I think when he's first, when they first sort of recovered the, the kids after the scene that Jay described and he's like made dinner for him. And it's just like really shitty um, d- dinner or whatever. And then he like pour, pours some beer into his glass or whatever that was like filled with milk. And there's like milky beer next to it. Just like one of the, one of the weirdest things ever. And I think that one of the, like so many other moments in the film, it's like this notion of, okay, he, this 12 year old, he wants to try beer or whatever. Like he's going to drink it and he drinks it. And it's like, obviously he's horrified by it, but you know, he's, he's going to keep drinking it because, you know, he just got some beer from this guy who seems to care about him. Um, something that he hasn't felt probably since his parents died, which I don't know. If, do we know how many years ago before his parents died? I'm not sure. Um, in the movie. Maybe it's said that I don't remember. So I just found that to be both funny and, and a really touching scene in the film. And I think you, you really begin to fully sort of comprehend the the sort of the scope of, of Bruce Willis's character in the scene and sort of the tenderness. Um, you get, I think, sparks of that before with his scenes with Francis McDormand and also, you know, calling the foster parents and whatnot. But I think when you actually get to see it in action with Sam, I think you really start to believe what, uh, what his character is sort of capable of in terms of um, the trajectory that he's on. So really enjoyed that scene out of 10, Scott, you first, what are you giving Moonrise Kingdom? 9.5. It is wonderful. Yeah. Jay, how about you? Never thought I'd get killed on the podcast for giving this an 8.5, but that that's where I'm coming in. Yeah, Scott Harvey's yeah. incredulous. Yeah, ridiculous. Uh, I'm on the same page as Scott. Nine point five for me. This was uh, this was top of top of the. I was gonna say top of the wagon just to make fun of something Scott said off mic before we started air, but I don't think it actually makes sense um, in the context here. So top of the pile for a long time for me with the West filmography, but we'll see if it shakes out there. With three films still left to review in the countdown series, that will do it for our discussion of Moonrise Kingdom and part seven of the countdown. Don't forget to also check out our podcast, Patreon at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. If you can support us over there, we'd appreciate that. But if not, that's okay. You can still find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, et cetera, wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd love it if you rated, reviewed, subscribed, shared, all that jazz so we continue to reach a broader audience. And of course, we really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Moonrise Kingdom. We'll be back next week with part eight of the countdown when we'll be revisiting what may be the auteur's most critically celebrated work, that is the Grand Budapest Hotel. We hope you'll join us for that. But until then, for Jay Habib and Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.